from like seven times all mean things. So I'm confessing to the assembly before I preach. <laughs> they weren't that bad. Uh, what someone says on their deathbed uh, is impactful and powerful. And uh, I was again thinking about, you know, whether we should speak about Christmas as being December or wrap up Joseph and things like that. And uh, I've always been challenged and um, just I like to read when Israel blesses his sons on his deathbed and what he says about them and what that must have looked like being in that room um, to hear good things and to hear bad things. And uh, amongst a time of reconciliation when the family's back together with Joseph in Egypt. So I'm going to focus a little bit today, Lord willing, on what uh, Israel says about Joseph. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. We will simply uh, start reading in verse 22. But again, I would encourage you to read through this chapter. Uh, to see what uh, Jacob says to his sons. But in verse 22 it says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers." Let's look to the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, again, uh, thank you that uh, this whole book is really about getting to know who we are and getting to know who you are. And so, Lord, help us to do that this morning. Help us to see um, another uh, great picture of who you are, uh, to deepen our understanding of who you are. And, uh, Lord, deepen our understanding of who we are as a people, uh, blood-bought uh, sinners who are now saints and on our way to heaven. Uh, help us to understand these things. We, we need you to uh, do the work. Lord, we again do not want uh, just another Sunday, but we would want a Sunday where you do miraculous and powerful things. And so... Um, we pray that we would not stop you from doing what you want to do uh, during this time. But we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that your spirit would control me, and that you would be honored and glorified above all. In your name, amen. In Genesis 49, verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. I would like to just really talk... Uh, pretty practical today as well, 
of, of what this looks like and what it means. But Joseph was obviously fruitful. Um, some translators just say he's like a, a, a young fruit tree, uh, ready to blossom and produce a lot of fruit. In his life, he really truly was the savior of the world. He, he really was, during his time, the savior of the world. I was trying to think of any other historical figure that, that, that has lived on this planet outside of the Lord Jesus, which is you know, a spiritual peace, but he literally saved the world with predicting the famine and telling people, you gotta, you got to store stuff ahead of time. And so when you look at just accomplishments, we have, we, we have uh, celebrated so many humans before uh, for civil rights, for uh, figuring out how to cure diseases, for um, seeking lost people. There, there's so many things, but Joseph literally was the savior of the world. Um, through what he accomplished in his life. But not only did he have an outward uh, fruit where people could look at Joseph and go, that guy just saved us, but he also produced many characteristics of what a godly man is supposed to look like. And we have enjoyed going through that over the weeks here at Brantford and how he reminds us of the man, the Lord Jesus, and all that uh, entails and all the fruit that the Lord Jesus produced. Uh, and I just, again, think of those verses on the vine, you're the branches, remain in me that you might bear much fruit. And so the practical applications, I just want to remind us again that we are told and commanded to produce fruit as believers. That again, when we look at the life of Joseph, uh, we might not be literal saviors of the world, but you know what? It's a good goal to go for. That we are to be those. And we'll talk a little bit again. One of my favorite things I studied here again was that Joseph was in favor of men. We are those that are supposed to produce fruit. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15, says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. There is a lot more verses that say that God's desire is for us to produce fruit. You can read about it in Galatians, in the book of John. There's lots of them. But one of the things that was interesting to me in this passage is, again, having a reminder that you are known by your fruit. Here, yes, he's talking about false prophets. But you are known by the fruit you produce. You have a lifestyle and a testimony that people in your life, that people you have come across and contact with, you show them some kind of fruit of your life. And typically, even if it's not fair, they decide whether it's good or bad. And so I want to remind us again of what we have learned that Joseph constantly was known 
by having good fruit, that he was found in favor with men. Now that sounds interesting because his brothers got rid of him and, and all the all the bad things that happened to him, and yet constantly, over and over, Joseph is elevated as a man that has favor with men. And I don't think it's a stretch to say the church should have favor with men. That we should be a people that are producing fruit. That in this crazy world, again, as we've talked about for weeks, we have peace. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We have love, joy, peace, patience. That should be being produced in our lives. So that when the world looks at it, they go, that person has peace. i got to go get some of that fruit. That person has love. I've got to go get some of that. How did that person have self-control? I've got to go get some of that. Joseph constantly did that with people. I'm amazed at the times of my life where um, just, just talking about simple things like pumpkin day at my house, that my people that I worked with said, you know what, I would like to come over your house because it seems like you just know how to have fun with people. I got to tell you, that's fruit. <laughs> you know why? Because there's a lot of people that don't know how to get together with people and have fun. There just is. It's not as complicated as we like to make it sometimes. You are showing people fruit all the time. All the time. And it is our calling that we show them a life that is abundant in love and mercy and grace. All the things our Savior is abundant in. Because we know the Savior. We do have the ability to, to produce bad fruit. The verses here talk about those things. A good tree cannot uh, bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. When you read in Genesis here 49, there is a few things that Jacob's going to say about his own children that you're like, ooh. I don't know if you should have said that. <laughs> and yet that's what their lifestyle said. His firstborn, you are unstable. You're unstable. And that, and again, as we talk, that's forever. That's in God's eternal word. A, a, a reputation, a proclamation on his own flesh and blood. You can produce bad fruit. It is possible as a believer. As we read here in Genesis of Joseph um, producing or being this beautiful fruit tree, it says a fruitful bowl by a well. Again, I would think it would be a normal, practical reminder to the believers that water helps the fruit tree grow. And so we read about in Psalms 1, Blessed is the man planted by the streams of water that can produce fruit in its season. We would know that it's the picture sometimes of the Bible being the living water. That is the thing that is producing in us good fruit. It's not our own righteousness. Okay? But even here is talking about Joseph being planted by the right source so that he might be able to produce this. Now, again, if you looked at it just from a human perspective, would you say Joseph was anywhere near living water in his lifestyle? 
all the way up to age 44. And then it seems like he might get decent, you know, ruling Egypt. But you would not sit there and say that he has just got a nice life ready to produce fruit. Again, reminding us that as tribulations and trials come, we have examples all throughout the Bible of people that went through absolutely horrible trials and tribulations and came out producing good fruit. Came out producing it. Where are we drawing our water from? There was a story that said a farmer once planted two fruit trees on opposite sides of his property. The one he planted to provide a hedge hid the unsightly view of an old landfill. The other to provide shade to rest under a near cool mountain stream which ran down besides his fields. As the two trees grew, both produced began to flower and bear fruit. One day the farmer decided to gather the fruit from the tree nearest his house. The one used to provide a hedge from the landfill. As he brought the fruit inside the house, he noticed it was a little deformed. The symmetry of the fruit was not very good, but still the fruit looked edible. Later that evening, while sitting on his porch, the farmer took one of the pieces of fruit for a snack. Biting into the fruit, he found it to be extremely bitter and completely inedible. Casting the fruit aside, he looked across the field to the other tree over by the mountain stream. After walking across the field, the farmer took a piece of the fruit from the other tree and bit into it. Found the fruit to be sweet and delicious. He gathered several more pieces of fruit and took them to the house. The fruit was greatly affected by the nutrition of the root. Just as the tree grew by the landfill to be bitter, and the, stream, and the tree by the stream produced sweet fruit, so the Christian has a choice. He can either put down his roots into the soil of the landfill of fleshly pursuits, or into the cool, refreshing stream of the person of Jesus Christ. We must understand that the root bears fruit. The fruit of the Christian is the outward evidence of the inward motivation. The fruit of the Christian is the outward evidence of the inward motivation. I have said and will continue to say, how's our Bible reading? Maybe I'm saying it because mine is, is uh, slacking. But I don't know why. It seems like in times where um, people are arguing a lot and things like that, for some reason, instead of driving me into my Bible more, maybe it's driving me out less. I don't know why, but maybe you can relate. But the whole point of that is that's a scary place to be. Is when we start reading less, it will be impossible to produce sweet fruit like we're supposed to. Like we're supposed to. The other part in Genesis 49 here. It says his branches run over the wall. This is the idea of the fruit produced in your life being a blessing and something that other people can partake in. It extends past his tree over the wall so you can do it. In fact, there's a, you know, a simple story. You might even have some in your own life of, of certain towns in this country. It used to be orchards. It used to be like almost everyone had fruit trees um, in their yards, things of that nature. And as those branches lean out over your property line, it might have a branch go into a regular road along the sidewalk. Guess what? That is now free fruit for everyone. I remember going to the state of Washington and around 
their development, we took a walk, and there was these beautiful uh, plum trees, mostly ornamental, but the plums tasted great. And I felt like, man, this is weird. Like, I'm just walking. Here's a, whole, a huge uh, tree full of plums. It doesn't look like anyone's eating them, but I'll be leaving in eight days anyway, so I'm going to eat them. And I started eating all those plums. And uh, I liked it because I didn't do nothing for it. I was just on a walk, and someone else had done the work and produced fruit, and I just got to benefit. I just got to benefit. Guys, we need to be as believers producing fruit so others can just have a time of refreshing. And they might be able to look at our lives and just enjoy fruit. Let me ask you something. When is the last time someone came up to you and asked you for advice? I just want to throw it out there. If we have the Spirit of God inside of us, who is all wise, if we're to be growing in wisdom, and no one is coming up to you ever asking you for advice, then what kind of fruit are you producing? When is the last time someone literally said, hey, I want to hang out with you? I just want to hang out. Now, there's a lot of factors here. But I don't want to take away from the fact that if people don't want to be around you, you better check out what kind of fruit you're producing. It's just that simple. If people don't want to hang out with you, how are you going to love your neighbor? We are to be those who are producing fruit so that people, Christian and non-Christian, can literally just come and go, I, I just want to, can I just come over? No pressure. I don't want you to, I don't need you to talk to me. I don't need you to preach. I just want to hang out. I just, just want to hang out and just have a nice time. That's the kind of fruit we're producing. You can call it hospitality. You can call it biblical principles of, of loving unit. You can call it whatever you want. I just know this. If people don't want to hang out with you, I think that's a hard thing as a believer. And I think something's wrong if people don't want to hang out with you. Let's keep going. In verse 23, it says, The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong. Now again, we would like, I'd like to remind us how some of this worked, where um, Joseph's father thought he was dead. And suddenly, they're hanging out. And, and what, I don't know, but you've got to think that Joseph told all the stories. You've got to think that there was this time where his dad goes, how did you get to this point? And he goes, well, I was in this guy Potiphar's house. Okay, and actually, I, I, I kind of climbed the ranks. Oh, okay, so how'd you get to the castle? His wife kind of accused me of some things. I'm sorry, what'd you say? Yeah. And then she, she accused me that I slept with her, and then I got thrown in jail. Oh. What happened when you were in jail? Actually, I interpreted some dream. Really? I, I mean, those stories are, are just amazing. He had to have told his dad these stories. And so now his father, who's been reunited with him, 
Now he starts to go, wow, look at how many people hated my son and shot arrows at him for no reason, for no reason. If you're a type of person that thinks a lot of arrows have been shot at you, you could be right. But again, you're just lining up with Bible characters. That's really all you're doing. Let's look at some of his arrows. Rejection. His brothers collectively hated him and sold him as a slave. Joseph had every right to feel in this life like he was completely rejected by those who loved him or were supposed to love him. His own family rejected him. And we remind us again of verses of Jesus coming into his own and his own receiving him not. Your Savior absolutely knows what rejection looks like. Absolutely. The arrows of temptation. I mean, Joseph is just trying to work hard. And Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him over and over and over again. And then when he's doing the right thing, by not just getting a little pleasure for himself, not just just giving in just a little bit, like, God, aren't we kind of even? None of this was my, none of this was, was up to me. Can I just give in a little bit? No, he actually stands his ground and he gets in more trouble for it. Arrows of temptation to just give in. And he got wounded for it. He got wounded for standing up for what was right. He got wounded for it. The arrows of false accusations. Hmm. Not only was he tempted and had to go through that, but then he was accused of things he did not do. The arrows of unjust imprisonment to be thrown in prison when he did nothing wrong. The Lord Jesus understands all that. I always remember during those times, it was kind of like quick in the morning. Let's just get him at night and have a trial early in the morning before anyone else wakes up. Doesn't seem too fair. Doesn't seem too just. The arrows of forgetfulness being forgotten in prison while he helped out. Well, helped one, maybe not the other but simply being forgotten. And these are all things we've talked about over the weeks, right? Piercing Joseph. At what point was Joseph saying, you've got to be kidding me. Did you really forget me? You've got to be kidding me. As he sits there in the prison, and a couple weeks goes by, and he's thinking as he's in jail, he's got to be bringing me up now. He's got to be bringing me up now. Maybe it just took a few more weeks for him to get settled back into the palace. Maybe he didn't have the right time yet. Maybe he's just trying to stay back, you know. He's trying to go slow at the, at the reinstatement of the job. There's no way I just said all this and he's forgetting me. There's no way. One of the things about the Gospels that is so chilling to me is that it seems like we don't have one account of anyone who is healed. Anyone who is healed going, wait, don't do that to that man. Not one. We don't have any account of the thousands that were fed with miracles of bread 
going, wait a minute, don't do this. We don't have accounts of anyone sticking up for him. Forgotten completely. All the good he did, forgotten. Arrows of loneliness. I can't imagine at one point when he's, whatever the age is, they are 29, 30, just alone in prison with no friends, no family, because he did the right thing. Joseph was shot at a lot. You know what? The Lord Jesus was too. And you know what? It could be our calling. It could be our calling as well. But I want to let you know that Joseph also fought back, but just not the way we think. So as I read through this over and over, I started to see that there's a bow in Joseph's hand. Right? So in verse 24 it says, But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. And there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Well, it would appear like Joseph really never fought. Or did he? We've heard of the phrase, kill someone with kindness. I kind of think that's how he fought back. And remember, as we talk about this, remember I talked about this last time of reconciliation and all those things, is that Joseph didn't just blindly forgive everyone and go, okay, don't worry about it. That there was, there was repentance there. There's a lot of things that took place. But at the same time, he chose to not seek revenge with his brothers. We said this before. I, that, that's an arrow shot back at him. When they're sitting there, they know they have just completely done all these horrible things. And Joseph goes, come here. Come near to me. I'm going to provide for you. That's an arrow shot back. It should pierce their hearts. If we look over in the final chapter, here's what he says to his brothers. He told them he'd provide for them. He told them he would comfort them. And it says he spoke kindly to them. No, it was 50. It was 50. It says that he remained strong with his bow. I, and I, I just, I think of the, the, the glorious picture there. You, you've always kind of seen, right? Maybe some of these crazy movies where someone gets injured, someone gets shot, and they keep moving forward. They keep trying. It doesn't matter. They, they have an enemy to go. Like Joseph had all this stuff happen to him, and the Bible says his bow remained strong. He's still fighting. Still fighting. But he's not fighting the way we would think. He's fighting saying, I'm still going to love. I'm still going to forgive. I'm still going to entrust this process with God, even though it looks like no one down here on earth is doing it right. I'm going to fight and trust God. His bow remains strong. And yet, it says there that the hands of the Almighty was the one holding his hands. I've taught archery before. When you have archery, or you have a bow, you won't really tell the poundage of the bow until you pull it back. 
There's some that are 15 pounds, relatively easy. Some recurve bows go all the way up to 60 pounds. You'll be able to pull back. And when you teach young people how to shoot, when you teach young people how to shoot, uh, you try to teach them the position of holding, the position of um, coming back. And quite frankly, when they are too weak, it gets scary. You have to know what you're doing as an instructor because they go like this. Uh, 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 and then they just let go. And suddenly arrows go flying. And suddenly people are stabbed. No, not on my watch. Not on my watch. But it is also amazing to try to come around the person and you hold their hand on the bow and then you pull back with them and then you kind of, you got to let them go. Hey, you got to get steady. You got to get steady. Think about how you're aiming. Now you're lining up your eye with the line, with the sight. You can do this. I'm going to take the strength of the bow. You can sit there now, relax, aim and fire and mate and hit the target you're trying to do. And that's exactly what God did with Joseph. There's no way that Joseph um, can forgive his brothers without God holding that bow. There's no way it doesn't appear like Joseph doesn't just throw Potiphar's wife right in jail forever without God holding that bow. So much was robbed from him. And yet God is the one saying, listen, let, let me take this so we can fight this together. And that's exactly how it works for us in this life. God had to help Joseph hold that bow. And we would be the same, right? Because we would be foolish to think we could shoot and fight without God holding the bow. Without him holding the bow. But I want to look, talk a little bit about fighting. <laughs> because it's an interesting thing here with Joseph calling Joseph the fighter when it doesn't really seem like it in the story. And yet, we're called to fight as believers. I just want to remind us today. Like in, I think it's 2 Timothy where it says, endure hardship as a good soldier. Soldier. Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Again, one of those passages that the Lord brought back to my mind uh, that I forgot how much I liked. You ever have those passages? Like, oh, I remember this part. I love that one. In Judges chapter 3, it says this. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. I want you to think about what he's saying. They conquered the land. God left certain people there so that the next generation who didn't know how to fight would know how to fight. This generation that marched in, they went through wars. They saw blood spilt. They saw miracles of God 
actually winning wars, physical wars right in front of them. And then comes that beautiful time of peace. And they're coming into the land. And the next generation comes up and they hear these war stories and it's kind of cool, but they have no idea how to swing a sword. No idea. And the Bible was saying, listen, you better train the next generation how to fight. Even in times of peace, they better learn how to fight. Because Israel's surrounded by their enemies all the time. And if anything, they're going to have to fight their flesh all the time. I, guys, do we know how to fight anymore? <laughs> I think we've had some good times of peace. I think we've had plenty in this land. Do we know how to fight? There was a man named Frank who was 20 years old, and he joined the Air Force to become an electronics technician. Good thing. Probably not going to fight a lot. Just wants to be an electronics technician. <laughs> but the first thing he had to do was to go through basic training. And failure to pass basic training meant being backcoursed and having to wait for the next intake. Part of basic was weapons training. This involved firing accuracy, being able to label all rifle parts, recite the series of events the rifle experienced in firing and reloading, understanding how the round traveled through the air, including at what stage in its trajectory it was higher or lower than the target, and being able to strip the rifle and reassemble it in under two minutes, some of it blindfolded. One small mistake meant being back course for four weeks. Irrespective of their ultimate job in the Air Force, everyone had to gain 100% pass with their weapons training to avoid being backcoursed. Every soldier has to learn how to handle his weapons. Joseph is a fighter. He didn't fight with typical warfare, but trust me, he fought battles. I'm remembering the proverb that says this, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And it seems like, as we've continued from this pulpit, that there's a lot of adversity going on. And I want to simply say, is anyone fainting? If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Do we know how to fight? Youth Group Thursday, uh, we were talking about um, one way to reach the lost. How do we actually try to witness to either individually to someone or collectively? What can we do? And um, I tried to tell the youth, I said, listen, I said, first of all, it's awkward. Okay, we can talk about that. <laughs> um, sometimes it's weird sharing your faith. I said, but also, if you grow up in a Christian home, and if you grow up going to youth group, and you grow up going to church, and you have never been told how to share the gospel, someone failed you. Plain and simple. Someone failed somewhere. That we, that we as believers always talk about sharing the gospel, but you've never been taught. Someone failed you. Someone failed you. 
And so, um, I wasn't that tough on him. But got some typical answers of, we're going to just share the gospel with our neighbor. I said, great, who's done it? How many of you have actually shared the gospel with your neighbor? Some of you did. Some went, no. Some said, well, I invited him to church. Okay. Is that sharing the gospel? This is what my students do at school. Can you stop asking questions now? Because it's weird how in our own minds, we've been told these words like share the gospel with your neighbor. Love them. Invite them to church. We did it once eight years ago as part of my Awana book that said I had to bring someone to Awana. And I literally think in my mind I have shared the gospel with my neighbors. That's what we think. I would like to ask us the same question. When is the last time we have shared the gospel with our neighbors? You had a real conversation where you said, this is how you go to heaven. This is what I believe. Because quite frankly, I'm with you where I say, you know, I think they knew pumpkin day. I prayed. Hence, they know we're here if we want to talk about the gospel. And that's what we talk about. Now, we're not even involved. This is sharing the gospel. We're not even talking about other stuff yet of fighting the flesh, fighting the temptations, fighting pride, all those fights. Yeah, I, I mean, who? I fought it. Yeah, really? When's the last time you actually did it? When's the last time you actually said, I, no, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to watch that, and you put the remote down? When's the last time you did something about your foul mouth? Like you messed up, you swore you did something. Okay, great, we all do it, but what did you do about it? What did you do about it? We're in a battle, people. And we just keep going, well, I, I, I'm trying. What does that mean? What does that mean? Joseph fought. Let me tell you something. Without training, without a personal, personal relationship with the Lord, there's no way he's winning those battles. There's no way. Guys, I'm telling you that in my own mind, I live in a development of 30 houses and I've shared the gospel maybe with three people and I feel like I'm good. Like I can preach about it because I've done it with three people. That, I, 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 I'm just, I'm, I'm speechless to myself. Do we know how to fight? Do we know how to fight? Judges 3, they were like, listen to me. The next generation will not know how to fight. You better teach them how to fight. And we hope the war never comes. But if it does come, they better be ready. They better be ready. Genesis 49, I'm not going to skip over the other verses, but don't 
don't be uh, scared if you think we're going to keep going verse by verse. I'm almost done. I'm just going to go to the end of verse 26. We'll try to close with this. Uh, amazing statement by Israel. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. You know who that is, right? Abraham and Isaac. I want you to think about that. Jacob saying, I have been blessed more than Isaac and Abraham. Okay. Just let it sit there a little bit. But he says that it's still a blessing. Okay. It says, um, there shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Okay. In my own reading of this, I'm reading separated. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Joseph was separated from his brothers. I can, let me think about that. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It actually means separate as in the, the word is actually uh, the word they use for um, a Nazarite separate. But here's actually what it means here. It means he was a prince consecrated to God. Different from his brethren. He was called and consecrated by God as a prince. Wow. So as we close on this whole portion of Joseph, we are those who are called out as well, correct? We're different. We're called. We're a holy people. We are consecrated. We are different. And I want to challenge us in this. Here's what I'm taking away from Joseph. Is there something that I learned over and over from Joseph was how good he was and how different he was at people, skills, and relationships. People, skills, and relationships. And you might sit there and say he had bad relationship with his brothers. I could, I could have that conversation, I guess. But I, I want you to think about the way he interacted with people and just kept getting beat up and he kept getting elevated by God and raised to powers of authority. He was good at people skills and relationships. I, when you're number two in the world and the rumors went around that his brother sold him into slavery and that he forgave him, do you, do you think anyone's going to turn on Joseph? The Bible is filled and history is filled with people turning on leaders. And I'm not saying there wasn't people there, but I'm just telling you that he he gained respect from people. He gained respect from people. He was consecrated as a prince before God to be the savior of the world. And, and I'm going to tell you again, as the Lord Jesus was rejected and nailed to a tree, he still and always will have the best people skills ever. There is no one better at relationships than Jesus Christ. He knows exactly what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and to make you feel loved in the process. There is no one better at people's skills than Jesus Christ. And so if we want to be a consecrated, holy people, let's learn how to fight and let's get good at relationships, especially with the non-saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, for who you are. Thank you that you're so good at relationships. Um, Lord, I just, it'll be, it'll be fun 
It'll be awesome and, and glorious just simply talking and hanging out in heaven. It will be uh, just such a testimony to who you are to take people like us and to make us like we've never sinned to a people that are literally enjoying hanging out with the God of the universe and that you enjoy being with us as well. You continue to do an amazing work at people skills. Lord, uh, help us as the world and even uh, other believers could shoot arrows at us that would hurt. And yet we would pray that you would strengthen us, that we would learn how to fight and yet do it correctly. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you so much. And Lord, now as we uh, go downstairs to pray, we have a, a sweet time of fellowship. Uh, thank you that we uh, are living in great times where we have a lot of food. And uh, we can just go pig out downstairs and just laugh and enjoy sweet fellowship. And uh, thank you um, for even the pictures in your word of just saying, let's have a meal together. Uh, thank you for that. So we thank you uh, for this food as we go downstairs. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would just help us throughout the week, that we might grow closer in our walks with you. In your name, amen.